Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In the Bin. I'm your host, Tyler Weinbender. Um, it's It's been a while, hasn't it? Here in Washington State, um, we're just now getting into cherry harvest, so things are going pretty crazy. Um, here pretty soon we'll be packing and shipping blueberries, and then right after that is new crop pears. Um, and next time I open my eyes, we'll probably be shipping uh, new crop apples. So things things get a little crazy here in the summer. My goal with the podcast was to release uh, one episode a month, and I'm pretty sure I can still stick to that schedule. But uh, believe it or not, I, I do some other things around here besides the podcast. So summer can get pretty busy, but that's uh, nothing new or unpredictable. We've been growing fruit for a long time and mother nature likes to deliver in summer. So this summer specifically, um, the weather's been awesome for, for growing high quality fruit. So the crops are looking really good. Uh, we're excited about what this future holds. So anyways, uh, let's move on. So if you're in the produce industry, you have probably heard the term IFPA or IFPA. The International Fresh Produce Association represents hundreds of companies uh, from every portion of the global fresh produce and floral supply chains. They're people that advocate on our behalf and help connect us with like-minded organizations and guide us through regulations and other um, hurdles. So they're they're pretty cool people. There were some IFA members that happened to swing by Yakima, Washington recently um, as they were visiting the West Coast, and we took the opportunity to invite them on the show. The guests, and yes, that's plural, for this episode are Rebecca Adcock and John Hawley of IFPA. They're both advocates for the fresh produce industry in Washington, D.C., so if you're in the industry in one way or another, they're two people that are working to help make your life easier. Okay, so um, introduce yourself, and then, John, you can go after that. Rebecca Adcock, uh, Vice President of Government, U.S. Government Relations at the International Fresh Produce Association. Great, and I'm John Hawley, Director of U.S. Government Relations at IFPA as well. Okay, and you guys both live in the D.C. metro area, We do, right? yes. Okay, yeah. what's the best lunch spot in D.C.? Mm, you go first. This is hard for me. Well, as someone who's been in D.C. since 2008, I guess you kind of get used to your own regular spots, necessarily the, the ones that people know. For me, it's still the house cafeteria um, in the Longworth office building. I spend a good amount of time there, um, so I've come to enjoy the things that probably I don't even enjoy as much as, as when I started. Oh, wow. but. So I'm going to take this way different and go um, not work-related and say uh, my favorite restaurant my family and I have been going through for years and know the family, and they've since expanded. Um, it's called Los Tios, and it's a great Tex-Mex El Salvadoran Nice. Um, place most of the most of the outlets are in Virginia. Have you had? Would you say it's authentic? Yes. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of times when I travel to like a, a a large city like that, they're like, "Oh, you gotta go try this Mexican food." It's like it's, it's as authentic as you can get, and still have to serve to Americans, you know, largely in middle yeah. America. But he himself is literally from El Salvador, and you know, um, they have a whole special menu that is less Americanized and. Clearly, they have their nice. standard Tex-Mex favorites. I've, but I've never been to D.C., but I'm going to check out by the way. both of those places yeah. when I go. Okay, so do you ever see, like, the VP at lunch or, like, senators <laughs> at lunch? Do you run into Bernie Sanders or somewhere? Or? I actually ran yeah. into Bernie Sanders last week. Really? Um, you absolutely can, yeah. So, yeah, the senators, yeah. the congressmen, you definitely run into them on the regular. Yeah. Um, the, the vice president or the president, you, you don't see them, um, and you'll see – <laughs> Those people who surround them all the time coming first. All the cabinet shut members down have. Everything. Yeah, they all have 
entourages and things that they have to. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. If you see them, it's usually from afar. Yeah. Okay. So in your roles, um, what's an example of, of some efforts that, that you're going through as far as relating to apples and pears and fruit in general, I guess? Yeah, well, I, I can go first on that. Um, probably the issue that we're hearing the most about is labor. Um, it's historically been the case that labor challenges, um, both with finding labor, uh, number one, keeping labor, um, and, and then particularly of, of recent, but certainly not a problem that's new, affording labor. And is um, that, do you think that's nationwide or is that more regional hotspots? It is absolutely nationwide. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I think a couple of years ago when unemployment rate wasn't as bad, uh, you were seeing it in, in, in more pockets. Today, it's everywhere. And it's really no matter kind of what uh, job in the supply chain, people are having a hard time finding workers, but particularly growers. Um, they're, they're really faced with a challenge. Yeah, I had a, a previous guest. He's a cherry grower um, for us, and he was talking about how it's so hard to find good labor, but then also to retain yeah. the yeah. good labor. So it's competitive. The, the new generation, um, not everyone wants to go pick cherries and apples and stuff. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot more opportunities for them now to make mm-hmm. good money, and, and with education and whatnot, it, it's hard to attract uh, farm general farm labor these days. Yes. Absolutely. I think um, you have a challenge with the new generation of folks who would be of that working age, right? That maybe their their parents or relatives filled those jobs before, and they're just saying no. Um, and particularly domestic workers, you can't find a domestic worker um, for, for most of the farm Largely, jobs that are out there. I'm sure stores. you guys are experiencing yeah. that. Yep. Yeah, there's uh, there's a handful of, of, of domestic guys, but mm-hmm. the vast majority is is H two A. So, and I know that's a that's a hot item right now, especially in politics. So, is there is. is there any current uh, movement on that effort? Or? Yeah, so I can share a couple things that are going on. Um, you know, in the last couple months, uh, the the Biden administration has put forth some regulations. Um, with regards to the H-2A program that have been really harmful for businesses. Um, And, you know, one of the things that we spend a lot of our time focusing on um, has been trying to get Congress to act to fix problems with the H-2A program. And what's happened, because Congress wasn't willing to act or was unable to act, is that the administration, um, both starting with the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, have decided to put forth regulations basically in lieu of of legislation that's come through and so i'll give one example that i'm sure many of your listeners know a lot about um, is a new rule that came out of the department of labor Um, and basically what it forces employers to do is to determine um, you know which of their workforce are in certain job codes so which what is their kind of job description best uh, uh, that they have to do and, and what's happened is that the regulation that came out has said that we're going to break down the adverse effect wage rate. That's that wage that's required to be paid to H-2A employees. And we're going to break it down by job function. Oh. And, and that's something that we thought had a lot of potential to be good for growers because it could essentially save them some money on some of the, the lower skilled workers that are getting paid a higher wage because it was all averaged out. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that the way that the rule was implemented, it says that if you're a worker and you do one job that's different than the job that you do 99% of the time, let's say, and that job pays higher, then you have to be paid the, that higher wage the entirety of the oh, time wow. that you're working in there. 
And so that's, we know, is going to be extremely problematic for growers who are already facing high wage costs. Um, so not only is it going to be expensive, it's going to be an administrative nightmare trying to figure yeah. out which job code, uh, which job function code you're going to have to pay that employee. And, and here's the kicker is that that same wage that you have to pay that higher wage, you have to pay that same wage to anyone who is hired under that same job order. So they may not even do the, the higher skilled job or the higher rewarded job. Um, and they're still going to make that higher pay. So wow. that's a huge issue that we're focusing on. Um, and we're leading the, the way on getting legislation that would block that regulation. Um, so there's a legislative effort underway. And there's also a court case that's happening uh, that would try to block that regulation um, so that folks, growers, you know, uh, over the next couple of months don't see their bills skyrocket. Wow. That sounds like a huge mess <laughs> it is it is an absolute mess no, so it's crazy even if someone only like whatever the job is that pays higher even if they only did it for half an hour mm -hmm. they'd still have to <laughs> correct yeah. correct and, and i mean they're an automatic raise they're real life situations which you know growers know all too well you might have someone who uh, typically brings the other workers to the farm right you know from from the hotel motel or housing wherever they might be and they're out that day, they're out sick, they can't work, and someone else has to do that job. All of a sudden, that guy who's doing it only one day, he's all of a sudden that same driver wage. And, and a lot of these growers, they don't have a ton of employees, so that could be their only option. Correct. Correct. Yeah, they're over yeah. barrel. Wow, Yeah. scary. Yeah. So how how distinct is the breakdown between different job duties? Is it is it pretty vague still, or is like a truck driver going to get paid different than a tractor driver, or like how, where's that break? Yeah, so that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Truck driver would be one wage, equipment operator would be a separate wage, wow. um, but you're going to have real challenges, not only on, on the small operations, which will probably feel it the most just because you got to do lots of different tasks, you know, if there's only a handful of workers, but even the bigger ones are, are going to find jobs that, you know, historically have been this and that. Um, and you're going to have to figure out whether or not it's just that lower uh, kind of paid wage. Maybe it's it's picking or whatever. Uh, it really ch be. changes how you're going to handle your workflow. Yeah. yeah. And yes. your hiring and your needs. Yeah. Whose dumb idea was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, the folks in the Biden administration did not do us any favors. Yeah. And, and agriculture, as I said, we were supportive of the idea but if you did it based on a primary job function, which seems, you know, a reasonable uh, way to do it. And, and unfortunately, they, they went a different direction. So um, a lot of the agriculture groups are, as I said, working on legislation, working on this lawsuit, doing anything that they can to stop this from going. Into yeah. Effect. And when's the effective date if those efforts fail? So the, the regulation came out in the end of February um, and it's going to be basically going into effect here for any new contracts going forward. Okay. Um, and so that's the scary part, right, is you're going to have some folks who already they're going to be fine because they've already hired their H2A mm -hmm. workers their contract is in place, but going forward over the summertime, you're going to see it. So a place like here where you're going to see a flood, a flood of workers coming in, hopefully, yeah. um, you know, towards the end of summer and into the fall, th those workers are most likely going to have to be paid that higher wage. Wow. Yep. Okay. So what else is scary out there? <laughs> that's, that's pretty scary. <laughs> there's a lot of scary in Washington, but there's also some good news there? and some good okay. opportunities. I never hear about the There are. News. I know. And... It's overwhelming, but but there is, and and one of those opportunities 
that uh, that we're looking for in the specialty crop industry, the fresh produce industry, is the next farm bill. Um, on a five-year cycle, the farm bill that basically gives the vast majority of the authorities for USDA um, and a significant portion, it's the, cer certainly the largest federal investment in agriculture, including um, specialty crops and fresh produce. Um, we had to reauthorize it this year or, or extend it, and we're all hoping for reauthorization. And it gives us a chance to make tweaks to the policy, make adjustments, make improvements, um, hopefully add some additional funding to keep up um, with inflation and the price of doing business. Um, it, it, it has the potential to impact from a policy program, funding perspective, um, everything from what you think of in middle America as the traditional row crops to specialty crops that, that we're concerned about here in this part of the country, to energy, to rural development, to uh, trade, um, and everything in between. There's So that's the best opportunity to sprinkle in some, some good... It is, stuff. absolutely. And there's a lot of good um, good things in there that, that have benefited specialty crops and produce since 2008, since we came squarely into the program. Lots of research targeted at us. Um, specifically some trade promotion um, programs tar targeted for us, uh, specialty crop um, block grants that go flow through USDA and into the states that are, that are managed by the state departments of agriculture to do a lot of good. Um, there's just a lot of programs in there. We're looking at seeing if we can figure out some interesting ways of getting new crop insurance products out, especially um, since we keep continue to see an, an escalation in the need for disaster assistance throughout the country, and it's hitting specialty crops very hard. So we're, we're bringing a lot of um, ideas on the table through the work we do through uh, the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance, which is basically every big regional, state, and national player in this um, specialty crop world comes together and talks about this for the last 18 months and we have 109 things we'd like to get done and oh, a little yes. then some and uh, we're asking for some new money but we think we we making the case for using it so so is that generally well received on the it on generally the is side? yeah I, it I, is i know things probably get cut back a little bit, yeah i mean there's there's always some horse trading especially right. as you get closer to go time <laughs> which is for our purposes the fall but you know actually there has been a lot of recept receptivity i mean we sell in, you know, market for people some of the healthiest foods we can put on the, the yeah. American table, and um, and people want to want to see that supported. Um, certainly in tough fiscal times, which we are, you know, if you're watching the news, you you hear the conversations about the challenges we're having with debt ceilings and inflation and and many things that are circulating. But we have the ability, you know, we think to to navigate and make the case for um, doing more, um, for, for keeping that domestic um, fruit and vegetable and, and specialty crop supply solid and safe and hopefully building it. Um, and we certainly want to um, make sure that first do no harm and hopefully um, grow our opportunities in our industry. Cool. That's a that's a good bill. So every five years, it gets every five years updated. we have to reauthorize the farm bill, and the, and the idea is there's a lot of things in there that change over time. A lot of right. a lot of programmatic issues that need fiscal updates, and um, and a lot of things that we learn. You know that it certainly anybody out there right now knows that farming and agriculture is not a stagnant industry, and so if we if we had the same rules and programs that we had 
1932 or 36, when the farm bill started, they would not be very pragmatic and, and operational for us. So we just are in a constant, hopefully a constant state of improvement. You're talking about inflation. Obviously, that's hitting everything that you spend a dollar on. Everything. Uh, one thing, I, when I talk to growers, a lot of them talk about fertilizer costs. Is that something that would be bundled into that farm bill, kind of, like a, some sort of... Fertilizer, to- fertilizer input costs are things that everybody is looking at. And that can be looking at that can be looked at every every place from uh, if you if you're talking Washington speak, there's many people on the hill that have jurisdiction over things that affect the economy. Yeah. Um, and the ag committee certainly and the and the agriculture sector um, has our fair share. Some of there are some programs um, and some assistance that is being considered in the farm bill um, for additional cost. In particular, they're looking at financial adjustments and accommodations for um, some of the places where you see farm loans and um, program crops, of which specialty crops are not, um, as well as um, potentially some of that factored into um, how existing or perhaps new crop insurance is priced. But yeah, those it's a huge conversation for the breadth of agriculture, not just our growers. Yeah, know. there's there's a lot of problems on farmers' plates. There are, right and now. and a lot of that is you know there's a supply there's a supply issue as well. Yeah. It's just not it's it's a much bigger issue throughout the system and figuring out how you build capacity. You know where are we getting those products? Yeah. Again, do we want to think you know, about that? Might be just having more here. here. <laughs> that might be the way to approach it is to help with the supply side versus mm-hmm. versus maybe subsidizing the cost of it maybe maybe rebuild the domestic supply for fertilizer yeah or and that, that is that's 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 been what's a little outside of our yeah. bailiwick here but I've, I've historically done some working in the mining industry and that's a huge focus and actually a focus that some people might be surprised that um, the biden administration has been reasonably supportive of and, and acknowledging there's no way around it you know depending on other countries in particular unstable countries um, is just not the way to go, and, and unfortunately, that's where a lot of a lot of those raw input materials come from. Yeah. So at lunch, I overheard you told Robert who the next president is. Do you want to you want to tell me who that is? <laughs> um, <laughs> or who you think? <laughs> I, there, there will be zero talk of of presidential politics out of my mouth at this juncture. <laughs> I mean, John, if you're silly enough to go there, knock yourself out, but I I will, no, not, I will not prognosticate on the never, <laughs> To say, it, I, it will feel like a thousand years between now and the presidential election. In some respects, it is the blink of an eye. Yeah. And to say a thousand and ten things could happen between now and then that would make any prog. I'm going to say prognosis because that's kind of what it feels like (laughs) Um, now would be, uh, yeah, the folks that are doing that are, are, are literally paid to be in that business and probably will be wrong. Wow. Hmm. Man. Yeah. Politics is, uh, I don't know how you guys work in it because I can, I get a headache (laughs) after talking about it for, we're at 18 minutes now. It's just like, you were talking about the different, the different regulations and stuff. It's just, there's the big P and there's the little P, you know, there's the big (laughs) politics, which is, you know, that really inner party partisan kind of stuff. And then there's the politics of policy and that gets much more nuanced. We really spend a lot of time, you know, I don't know, our bread and butter is in the little P because that's where we've got to stay if we're going to be fair dealers and, (laughs) 
you know, really build out the case to be made to doing things. And then you have to bring that up into, into the, the unfortunate mix of the partisanship. Yeah, man, scary. So if, what is politics missing? What do you think the, what do you think the missing puzzle is? What would help? You're Clear the political scientist. You because, go first. <laughs> from my perspective, and then I'll correct you. It's so it's so muddy. Like there, there's everyone's got an ulterior motive, and it's it's like it, something needs cleared up. And I don't know what the answer is there. You seem eager to mention. <laughs> I don't know. So so my lens, you know, I come through this. I, I'm an environmental scientist by education and training, and so I never would have in a million years dreamed I would be in this position doing these things that I that I care very much about. So I'm really here much more about the policy. Some people are in Washington doing what they do because they're fascinated by the process. The process for me is the means to the end. But I do remind people in the, in the most bare bones way I can ever describe it to people from my non-political point of view to explain what happens in Washington or in their state capital for that matter is at, at its essence is, is a study in psychology and human nature. Because even in very dramatic times, um, some of these behaviors are very predictable. They may be disappointing, but they are predictable. Mm. And I, just, uh, I always used to use the analogy, what does it look like when you're sitting around your Thanksgiving table? There's a ton of politics at your family oh, yeah. Thanksgiving table. That's always a fun You know, day. with different mm-hmm. points of view and, you know, give somebody, one person, one too many glasses of wine <laughs> and things go south real quickly. And there's different age groups represented and different life experiences represented. And, you know, the kids think all the adults are idiots and, you know, backward <laughs> and the, you know, and, and that is a, a good sample and and it, it feels frustrating and nobody wants to do that too many times a year yeah. because it's just you know it can be dysfunctional it can also be very rewarding mm-hmm. but um it, i feel like congress and politics and state capitals are a lot like that you know they're just a very raw study in how people act when power and significance and influence are on the block yeah no that's that's great that's you good. know so if you get frustrated yeah. just realize that Everybody thinks if they went to Washington, they would act differently. And it's been my observation that that rarely occurs because yeah. I've seen a lot of them flow in and out. No, I, I think what Rebecca said is is accurate. And I think when you look at the folks like us who are in Washington every day, you know, working on behalf of, of our members, um, we put politics aside, um, both in our, our personal lives and, and very much in, in our professional lives. When I go into a, see a member of Congress or their staff, I don't go as a Democrat or a Republican. I just go as someone who's advocating on behalf of, of uh, industry. And I think that's what gets missed, you know, when people think, you know, okay, you've got a couple of lobbyists on your show here. Yeah. You know, they must be, you know, throwing all kind of barbs at each other. That's not what we do. Um, our, we're, our goal is to kind of overcome kind of all that noise that's out there that makes Washington somewhat interesting for, you know, uh, a TV show, I guess. Um, but but it's, it's, it's not like uh, a house of cards um, or even Veep, the, the other kind of show it's about Washington, D.C. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit more like that. Probably. Definitely more Veep. Um, but no, it's, 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 we find a way to, to get past all that. 
And I think, um, you know, the issues that we work on on behalf of the industry, um, greater consumption, you know, to lead to a, a nutri uh, more nutritious uh, diet, um, making sure businesses have the workers that, that can operate, making sure um, farmers have the tools that they need to grow more fruits and vegetables. Those are not really partisan issues. True. And so when I tell people, like, I'm a fruit and vegetable industry lobbyist, they're like, Oh, it's not like what I see on TV. And it's like, no, but, no, no, it's but not. there is us too. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the partisanship um, makes for a good, good story, but, but isn't always And it makes for good work. press. I mean, yeah. I, I can't, at the risk of upsetting any journalists who are listening, you know, I think the process, including lobbyists, you know, get a real bad rap. Um, and what you hear in the news and what you see in the news is truly sincere. I mean, they, they want you to tune in. Yeah. You know, it's not the mundane, the routine, the business of doing business in Washington, honestly, isn't terribly glamorous. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of conversations. Um, it's a lot of back and forth. It is not incredibly dramatic. It is um, thought it is honestly often pretty thoughtful. Um, and it's not nearly as confrontational on, on the regular as people would get the impression of by, you know, tuning into their news or even tuning into some of, you know, the political podcasts, which you are not. So, um, you know, I, I think just, just if it feels like what you're seeing um, to get you to tune in seems surreal or too awful to be true, it is. Yeah. It is. And, you know. Ha do have a little bit of faith that there are a lot of people up there that are not always acting egregious. So we've covered ongoing issues. What are, what are some previous issues that you guys have worked on in, either together or individually that you're proud of um, in your career? Could doesn't necessarily have to be in, in ag or something, but what's, a, yeah. what's an example of something that you got moved through the system that, yeah. that was good? I guess I'll, I'll give an uplifting story of how the system can work. Some good news. Yeah. Here. Um, so <laughs> when I was a congressional staffer, I started out uh, as, as a, a staffer in Congress uh, in the mid 2000s um, and worked for a member who came in um, barely by the skin of his teeth. He won his first election by 83 votes oh, out of wow. more than 241,000 cast. Um, so his whole goal when we first got elected was getting reelected. Um, and so when that happened, I was able to join up on his legislative team um, and got a whole host of issues, one of which was agriculture. But another one was on education policy. And this was my opportunity to see if the system that, you know, I had always kind of revered would actually work. And so um, I helped come up with a bill that helped veterans who were serving in, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, transition to become teachers when they left the military. Really? That we had spent all this time and money investing in their leadership skills, you know, uh, their, their skills all around. And then they were serving in the military for a few years and leaving. Um, and there was this program that said, these group of veterans can't come in and be part of it. And we changed the law. And it was just an idea that I had that I worked with my boss on and all those kinds of things. So the long story short of why is it encouraging is because it's one of those things where you can run into that in, in everyday life. And I actually ran into one of the people who was going through the program, really? she, was, she was my taxi driver. And <laughs> really? I was chatting with her and said, you know, oh, do you do this full time? She said, no, I'm actually 
transitioning out of the military and wanting to become a teacher. And there's this new program that's that's called the Troops to Teachers program that's allowing me to do it. And so it was one of those moments where you go, okay, this is why I do it. (laughs) This is awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, working on, on labor issues now, you know, I'm waiting for when we get immigration reform done and I can finally meet someone and say, you know, I was having a heck of a time with that H2A program, but now it works and now it's on the right path. So, you know, you got to have those motivational stories that keep you going sometimes in that city. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. Can you beat that? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know. Probably not legislatively. So I, I've had the very fortunate opportunity to work, theoretically, I guess, in all three branches um, of the government, as we know. Um, I, I am an attorney, though I, I don't market myself as one. So, you know, I guess I guess sort of check the, the, um, that box. But I've worked on the Hill and also uh, worked within an administration in the executive branch. And one of, or two of the opportunities that I had there, um, especially in the executive branch, stand out to me. I got to um, manage, for the previous administration, the uh, presence report on rural prosperity, which was a deep dive, um, a, um, administration-wide look at what are the things, what are just the key indicators of prosperity um, and, and how to maintain it in rural America? You know, what, what, is it, what does it take? What is the sign of a healthy community? Not to make rural urban, not to just say we want to grow our way, way into looking like something else, but to protect the integrity and opportunity for rural America to stay rural or whatever it wants yeah. it to be, but also stay healthy and vibrant. You know, what are, what are those key indicators? Um, and so that, that was, I was the manager for that and it was led by USDA, um, and my former boss there. And I was the manager for that and got to actually submit that, um, to the president and it, you know, was published and it was used as, and still some, to some extent, um, whether they like it or not, or is being, you know, referenced because it wasn't, it wasn't a partisan pursuit. It was, this was fundamental information, you know, a sort of a breakdown of, of the elements of what we want to see the government and the states work together on to build healthy communities. So and I was very proud of that. What did you discover when you were doing that research? So foundationally, um, you know, was it was technology and certainly um, network connectivity, that e-connectivity, you know, making sure you know, we live in an electronic economy and not just not just give it having the technology of five years ago, but helping rural America keep up, staying cutting edge to be able to truly be farming, you know, 20 miles out of Yakima and have a good enough internet connection yeah. that if you wanted to sell direct to the consumer, you can, you know, and that you can um, actively participate. It seems like there's been some good efforts made in, there that, have. in that area expanding. That has been a very bipartisan effort sure. that has been re- really foundational. We yes. have a very small community north of here, um, Quincy, Washington, mm-hmm. and it's a big ag town but mm-hmm. they have uh, google data centers yeah. and a bunch mm-hmm. of tech yeah. there and their internet speed is faster than the Yakima. it's crazy <laughs> yeah and it just goes to show you you can have that rural flavor you don't have to aim to be a big city you know there's something for everybody in this country and, and it's part of their fabric um economic development um education and workforce um health um a lot of uh, you know social elements you know good schools nice parks you know the all the things that it was it it was a pretty obvious pursuit but the way we captured it 
um, and sort of indicated ways the federal government can help or get out of the way. A big part of it was get out of the way. Yeah. And I also had, I got to be the, a regulatory officer and um, a p- big part of that was reform. So going through and really just cleaning up the books at a federal agency. It wasn't so much about taking things, undoing or or uh, recreating anything new. No, most, most Americans don't love regulations, but some things just sit there. You know, they, they go obsolete and nobody's cleaned it up. So I feel like a lot of good work. Cool. That's cool. So how would, uh, let's say, a fresh out of college, someone wanted mm-hmm. to get into politics, uh, whether, you know, that's contacting their representatives mm-hmm. or actually, you know, taking the approach you guys did and getting a career in mm-hmm. it. What's what's uh, what's a way to do that? So you're talking about coming to Washington to work or you're or talking about uh, just engaging? Engaging. Let's go with In the process. Yeah. So if, if I was a new grower, I just inherited a 100-acre yep. farm or whatever and I was upset with regulations, what's the best way to go about it? Rather than just bitching about it at the coffee shop, what should I do? You call your congressman or senator. They literally have entire staff waiting to take your call, and such a tiny percentage of their constituents, of which you are, whether you voted for them or not, actually ever call to engage constructively. Be polite. Be professional. You know, make your case. Give them some, give give them a solution to solve, or give them a problem that you really you know don't you know write it down on paper. The f- top five reasons why whatever the government has done, whether it's a regulation or a, you know some sort of law that might be considered, like you know write down your f- top five points and tell them that. And they literally, or if you if you're having trouble getting your passport, I mean, there's a, a, so many reasons why you. You, they are elected to serve you and be your representative in Washington, not just to Congress, but to the government. It's, and very few people participate in that process. Does that information get relayed? I know you, you yes. said they have staff. It, it, so you would be so, oh my gosh. It seems like it, it falls it, on it deaf does. ears. No, so, it does. So, so I'll, I'll speak to this. Because he worked in law. Uh, yeah. I, oh, really? I, I worked as a, a staffer both in the district we, office. We both take constituent calls. Yeah, and, and in his Washington, D.C. office. And, and as I mentioned, my boss won his first race by by 83 votes. That meant anytime he was in a room with 42 or more people, if they changed their mind on him, yeah. he's, he's not out. being reelected. And so people have, have the ability um, to really connect with the member of Congress, um, have them out to your facility. That's, that's one really easy thing to say. To say, hey, Congressman, Congresswoman, I'd love to show you. Mm-hmm. And and members of Congress are always up for learning. I have always and, found and that to staff, be true. And their staff, you know, they're, they're very staff heavy. Th- their staffs are up for learning too. I was a young staffer when I told you that story about yeah. that bill I wrote. I mean, I, I was not even thirty yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you may may get this young staffer, but that young staffer is going to become <clears throat> someone someday. So I think people need to jump at the opportunity to engage with their member of Congress. And right, and a member of Congress is not going to be an expert on whatever yeah. issue that you're calling about. But if you can get that member of Congress to look to you when an issue comes up and say, oh, you know, we've got we've got some legislation that's going to impact the, the mm-hmm. Apple industry. I know who to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's their resource. That's the relationship that you want to develop because Absolutely. it's possible to do that. And I will tell you, regardless of whether or not you're criticizing the member, yep. you know, you don't like what they're doing exactly. um, or you, you like what they're doing, engage them because 
people in those roles are are up for for seeing all sides of it. Um, but it does take people, you know, having that willingness. You, ha- you have to pick up the phone. You have to yep. write the email. You ha- you have, you know, there there's very few of them and a lot of you. Yeah. And you know you 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 just you've got to take action. You've got to go to them. They can't find all of you. They I, many of them try, but they'll usually try during the election cycle, you know, and when it's most active. Yeah. So three months before the vote. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because. I feel like if the rep isn't necessarily aligned with you politically, a lot of people are scared intimidating. or scared yeah. or just don't sure. want to waste their time. It feels like it falls on deaf's ear on deaf yeah. ears. But I think that's the most important time to reach out. Even if they don't agree with you, it's still worth it to educate them. A hundred percent it is. And and again, that's where I come back to the you know, you guys might have to market fruit. And I'm sure not everyone that you market or are trying to get in as a customer is necessarily the easiest person or business yeah. to deal with. But you still want them to hear you out, yeah. you know, and so approach it like how how am I going to lay this out and for someone to understand I have a legitimate issue. Here's why it's a problem or here's, you know, it's fine to say thank you too. sometimes, you yeah. know, if somebody votes for something that you felt strongly That's about a good point. Yeah. and you, uh, you know, and, and you are paying attention closely enough to realize they did it. Call the office, send an email, say thank you. I I saw that. I noticed that. Thank you very much. You know, there's That's a good point. Yeah. No, oh, when I was a stabber, I helped many people who would tell me in the meeting. You know, I'm not going to support your boss. Really? Right? And I'm like, I, I understand that. That's not that. a, that's, You're that's a not constituent. A thing. We're here it's to help you. We're here to help your business. And if you decide not to vote for the boss at the end of the day, that's fine. This is official business. We're here to help you. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. And, you, and you, you do happen to win over a few people yeah. that way. And, and you don't have to lead with that, by the way. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. It's none of anyone's business who you vote for. Right. Um, so, yeah. So that's, yeah. That's funny. Washington, it might not be unique, but it feels unique because we have the mountains that go down the middle yeah. of the state. One side is completely different than the other. Yep. And that is not, that's not unusual. The vast majority of states have either an urban rural divide or a regional sort of, you know, business relationship divide. You know, I am originally from Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky is very different than Western Kentucky. They both may be rural, but coming from very different sensibilities, and you got a whole swath down the middle that's different. I don't know. Con- Connecticut may be a little more um, consistent because it's <laughs> Eastern, small, but still, yeah. you know. Eastern Connecticut, yeah. where I'm from, is, is rural. Uh, if you look at the half the state geographically, um, the largest town is about 45,000 people in half of the state of Connecticut. The yeah. other half is much more densely populated, yeah. much more urban, Very much more urban. high, uh, yeah. high suburban. Like it, it always, you, it, yeah. it's a very common human experience to think nobody understands, <laughs> but it's my observation after being a little long in the tooth and traveling a lot of the country and certainly spent a lot of time with, um, people who live off the land and resources that the stories that are being told and the experiences that they have their individual spins, there's a lot of common concern, a lot of common opportunity, a lot of common fears, um, and also a lot of common values. So I, I just, if you don't, if you don't have the opportunity to get out and know what it, 
you know, the people in Iowa think or the people in Mississippi think or um, or the people in Vermont think, you might be surprised how much in common That's you have That's a good point. Them. I think, you know, the past decade or two, it seems like we've kind of narrowed into this echo chamber we have, where yeah. you're only talking to people who agree with you. You know, yep. very rarely, I'm thinking of your Thanksgiving. And it's easy to do that, example. you know. All the wonderful technology has made life fun and fast and, you know, we're all google scholars but you know it's also made it so we we don't flip on the new the the nightly news generally as a family anymore and hear all the same thing we turn on whichever cable news channel that you most closely identify with and it's because it echoes or you you know you get your news from whatever news source on the internet you think is most closely aligned and it forces you not or it allows you to not have to um, consider other points of view or even other spins yeah. on the same thing. No, but it, yeah. It's like when we talked about the, the labor issue, right? Those are issues that you understand, you know, that probably most of your listeners mm-hmm. understand. The question is, how are we talking to the rest of the country mm-hmm. about what's going on here with, with the impacts of labor challenges? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where we, we run into problems sometimes, mm-hmm. that we are in that, that echo chamber of, of everybody thinks one thing, uh, everybody knows all the same things. And the whole thing is we got to talk to the people who don't understand it yeah. and talk to them in a way that makes them understand why it's important to them um, and important to the country as a whole. Because otherwise, an issue like that labor challenge, that's just a farmer problem. That's just a worker problem. What does That it doesn't to impact me, me as right. a consumer. And then when you tell them, well, actually, <laughs> really? because they're having those problems, your grocery prices yeah, are going up. Exactly, the availability yeah. of fruits and vegetables that you're used to is being threatened. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, okay, now I care. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, lo- the more localized access to, you know, the freshest food possible is, is at risk. You know, we, we've gone from being for the, the specialty crops, which we, you know, are the fruits, the veg, the tree fruits, the horticulture um type products have gone from being i think in the last decade or so about 50 percent of the total farm gate non non-livestock um to 44 percent. that's not a good trend for a country who you know we talk we talk in the cities and other places about you know wanting to be food secure and food deserts and local foods and local access and freshness and all the things that are awesome but that's not the trend we're on from a production standpoint you know and so how do we get gain that support on labor on the farm bill on supply chain issues that you know empower people and part of that is trying to get people who want to farm not and and not just stay on the farm but get in to farming you know and and not just get into farming um, not picking sides, but, you know, there's a lot of conversation about not just big versus small, but um, corporate versus family or more locally run. I mean, fa- families run corporations right. and that's, you know, one way of doing business, but, you know, investment funds becoming part of, of farming and doing a lot of things like that. And I'm not picking winners or losers in that conversation, but it's a conversation. You know, and, and people, especially people who are not in farming, have a lot to say about it. 
probably as much to say about it as the people who are in farming. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when the people who don't understand the dynamic of why those things are happening, you do know, you, have strong opinions about it. Do you think as these massive, they might not be massive, but these large corporations mm -hmm. come into farming, do you think that might help with regulations and putting a, a, a louder voice out there to, to fight some of these uh, constraints? Um, I think it depends. I, I think that would be very subject specific. In, so, in, some, in some respects, you see regulatory activity and regulatory burden, e even on things that we, you know, that are incredibly important, actually makes scales of operation more challenging. And it, and it becomes, a, those are elements that can push people toward getting bigger or toward, um, needing the resources and the financial stability of, of moving toward a more corporate um, or a larger scale investment model because it's just hard to comply. It's hard to make things work. And it, it can really work against the entry level farmer on any scale, you know, to, to participate in a very highly regulated industry. So there's a level of financial security and predictability that actually you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether it actually discourages more regulation. Um, it certainly can make the regulations that come online easier to deal with. So I, I know that IFPA is, is global, um, but do either of you two yourselves, do you work um, on import or export issues in relations to ag? The work that I do is for U.S. government relations. So we are focused very specifically, first and foremost, on the relationship with um, the U.S. industry. Um, and of course, that involves trade in and out. You know, pushing product out of the country is extremely important. Yeah. Marketplace yeah. Um, and something that um, many U.S. growers are very focused on. Um, we do have some folks that that do some work. Usually, it's more at the standard setting level in the international space. You know, the the equal playing fields, the making sure the that the World Trade Organizations and some of those governing global bodies are doing business in a way that is that's just fair to, to farmers and growers. I was just thinking, I, I just think of our region, really, when it comes to these mm -hmm. problems, but it's probably global. Right? It is. Guys, and there is so there's, many. There's yeah. guys in Chile and exactly. in, in Europe that are facing the exact same problems. It, it, so many of the exact same problems. <laughs> it, it, would, it would be jaw-dropping, probably, for a lot of folks if they really <laughs> sat down and talked to them. And, and honestly, U.S., Growers and farmers have a much more meaningful relationship and much more influence on it. Won't, doesn't feel like it some days, but compared to growers and farmers in other countries that have on their government. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Yes. It, yes. I mean, there's something to be said for our representative democracy and how things were laid out because not not every small business or grower in another country has the same level of opportunity for engagement yeah. and influence as you have, which is back to our original point. Use it, you yeah. know, use your voice, stand up for yourself. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, sounds like we just need to get out there and talk to each other, mm -hmm. even if we're on different sides of, of mm -hmm. the spectrum, you know, we, we need to come together and, and solve problems to feed the world. I, I think it's, it's really just that simple um, is that we do kind of have to keep the conversation going. Sometimes we have to find new ways to talk about mm -hmm. it um, for folks that aren't uh, initiated. But 
Yeah, in, engaging. Um, you know, there's the old saying that decisions are made by people who show up, right? And <laughs> and the reality is is that if folks in the industry don't show up to weigh in when Congress is making these decisions or when the administration is making the decisions, the decisions are still going to be made. Mm -hmm. um, and they just may not reflect your interests because someone else was speaking um, and you were not. So that's why I always encourage people because there are opportunities to, to shift the conversation to get an outcome because of simply showing up. So, And, and don't be discouraged. I, I have heard and historic efforts to encourage people at the grassroots level to engage. I have, I have heard numerous examples over the years of people saying, well, I called that office and nothing happened. Yeah. Or I called that office and, um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't hear back immediately or nothing changed. Fair, frustrating, super frustrating. You got a thousand things going on. You're, you know, this is not another job you need. The reality is, did you call back? Did you call back again? I mean, I don't mean being annoying. I don't mean being a stalker. <laughs> but, I mean, stay on it respectfully, politely, um, because it, it's a little bit like the other family dynamic is that, you know, half the time you ask your family members, you need, to, you need them to do something. But it's not top on their list to do, you know. You don't, you don't give up after you ask them one time. You're like, no, I need you to go take the trash out. Did you hear me the first time? <laughs> you know, and then over time, you know, it may, sometimes it gets, it, it can get a little easier when you ask for the trash to go out the next time. You ask, ask three times. Um, and then, you know, progressively less and less and less comparing Congress, I guess, to teenagers, which maybe isn't all that yes. invalid. <laughs> um, but, you know, don't, don't give up by one. Don't give up because you don't get what you want the first time. Yeah. Like this is that. this is a complicated yeah. relationship, you know. It's not, and and they're, you know, they might not be hearing for everybody, but they're not just hearing from you, you know. So try again. Don't give up. Don't don't give up on yourself, because that's what you're doing if you're giving up on them. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Well, thank you guys for coming in. Thank you for having us. I, I, I told you if I learned something on this episode, it, it would be a good one. And I learned did something. You? Yeah, good. Did you? Good. Learned a few So things. you're going to call your congressman, right? <laughs> yes. Next time, next time I have a, dis a disagreement, I, there you will, go. I will call. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of In the Bend. You can find our podcast on most major streaming platforms as well as superfreshgrowers.com. This is a passion project of mine that's sponsored by Domexu Fresh Growers. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing with a coworker or a family member. And if you know someone who would be a good guest for our show, or if you have any comments, you can reach me at tw at superfreshgrowers.com. The show is hosted and edited by myself with graphics and social content by Brenna Mingarelli. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.